Our scripture reading today is from Micah 7, 18 through 20. Who is a God like you, pardoning iniquity and passing over transgression for the remnant of his inheritance? He does not retain his anger forever because he delights in steadfast love. He will again have compassion on us. He will tread our iniquities underfoot. You will cast all our sins into the depths of the sea. You will show faithfulness to Jacob and steadfast love to Abraham, as you have sworn to our fathers from the days of old. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Thank you, Heather, for reading that passage. And John for leading us in liturgy, the folks, serving our congregation well. Um, Thank you, guys. I appreciate that. Uh, So... If we haven't met, my name is Russ. I'm the pastor here at Christ Pres Cool Springs. And I wasn't here last week. We were able to get out of town uh, for a couple of days. And uh, Nate Evans, our uh, student and family director, preached his first sermon here at Christ Pres Cool Springs. And we listened to it in the car. We actually live streamed the, the service on our drive back. We didn't watch it because we were driving. <laughs> Don't do that. But but we did listen, and uh, we were going to just listen to the sermon, and, and Theo, our, our eight-year-old, said, um, I want to hear church music. So we listened, we listened to it all. It was beautiful. It was like, it was like being here. But, but Nate preached this beautiful, beautiful sermon um, on Micah 6, uh, the first eight verses of that, of that chapter, and it was so encouraging for me to hear for a number of reasons. He, he, he talked about the kindness of the Lord, and he, and he asked that question, what's the kindest thing that's ever been done for you? Um, and, uh, and that question has just been rattling around in my head and in my heart ever since. Um, I think about that because I've, because I've known the kindness of the Lord in a lot of ways. Uh, but, but man, it was so good to have Nate preach. Uh, one, because it's... it's I got a Sunday where I didn't have to, uh, which selfishly was, was wonderful, but two, just the care that he put into handling scripture of taking a verse, Micah 6.8, which is on coffee cups and inspirational posters. He has shown you, a man, what is good and what the Lord requires of thee, but to do justly and to love mercy and to walk humbly with our God. And to lead us into what's the context for that verse, what's being said before it. And it was so good. And so it, it was really encouraging for me to hear just as a, as a Christian, as a person in the church, but also as a, as a parent um, with, with one kid in high school and one kid in elementary who's coming up into student ministry soon. Um, it just brought me so much joy to hear our student ministry director here handle scripture with such care and in such an approachable way, but also with such conviction um, that it made me really, really excited for, for what that'll mean for my kids. Um, and so thank you, Nate, for that. Um, thinking about the kindness of the Lord, I think you can't think about the kindness of the Lord without at some point having to think about the subject of forgiveness, because part of the Lord's kindness is his pardoning grace. And so I want to ask you a question, and I won't ask you to share the answer, but as a way of getting into the importance of thinking about God's pardoning grace, the question is this, for what do you feel you need the most forgiveness? What's the worst thing about you? 
Maybe it's something you've done. Maybe it's just a way that you handle relationships. Maybe it's a uh, kind of a, a, th- a threat of compulsive dishonesty. I don't know what it is for you. I know what it is for me. There's a few. Um, but again, we're not answering the question out loud here, are we? Um, but I want you to have that in mind when you think about God's forgiveness, because, because we're going to talk about his forgiveness today. And I'm going to give, this is a three-point sermon. I don't do a lot of three-point sermons, and I know some of you want three-point sermons, and I will try to give you one every four or five months, and today is your day. And, and they all kind of start the same. It's perfect. Um, so here are the three points. I'm going to give them to you, and then, and then we're going to unpack them. But if, if you struggle to receive forgiveness, if you're somebody who, who, who wonders if God can forgive you for whatever it is that you have done or whatever it is about you that feels so, so broken and in need of help, I pray that as we unpack these verses that Heather just read for us, um, that you will see that you have to trust in the pardoning grace of God. You just have to. There's no other option for you. And so the three points are these. God's pardoning grace is born out of his character, not our loveliness. So that's the first. God's pardoning grace is born out of his character, not our loveliness. Second, God's pardoning grace is rooted in actual justice, not in forgetfulness. So his pardoning grace is rooted in in actually dealing with the problem and not just forgetting about it. And third, God's pardoning grace is based on a promise that he made, not on your behavior. So God's pardoning grace is based on a promise that he made, alluded to in our passage, not on your behavior. So we'll unpack these three as we go. We'll start with the first one. Each one kind of goes with each of the verses here. Verse 18, God's pardoning grace is born out of his character, not our loveliness. It says this, who is a God like you, pardoning iniquity and passing over transgression for the remnant of his inheritance? He does not retain his anger forever because he delights in steadfast love. Who is like God? No one. There are no other gods like God. What does he do that's so unique? He pardons iniquity. He passes over transgression in a way that is unlike any of the other gods. For whom does he extend forgiveness? The remnant of his inheritance, his people, the ones that he keeps, the ones that he will keep. We've had this, language, this word come up, remnant, a few times now in this passage, and I wanted to just take a moment to define it because I think it's important. I think many of us might say, I think I know what it means, but, but what the remnant is, the remnant is a term that is used to describe that portion of God's people that survived the exile, not just physically, but more important, spiritually, the ones who remain faithful to him. Because in exile and in all the stuff that they're going through, there's this refining that's happening. And he's putting his people through it. It's a furnace of refining. And at the end, some will still love him, but not all. And that, and that remnant will be the ones who are there, the ones who remain true to him. And there's this language that he uses of passing over transgressions for the remnant. 
And, and it's, it's, it's good to notice what it means because he's not just saying like forgetting, but, but it's, it's actually a reference to the Passover. It's a reference to the last plague during the Exodus, which was the defining moment for the people of Israel of God's delivering them from tyranny. It's the time when the Lord passed over the houses of the Israelites who put blood on the doorposts of their homes as he went through and brought this horrible judgment upon Egypt, the death of the firstborn sons. And he pardoned those who had the blood on the doorposts of their homes by way of a mercy for that particular judgment. The God that we're talking about here, who's severe, the God that, who is all-powerful, who demands righteousness, if this God doesn't forgive, then Micah's prophecy would only be a message of condemnation, of utter hopelessness, a hopeless decree and declaration that his people had sinned, the Lord's people had sinned, and now they're just going to suffer eternal consequences for their transgressions, full stop. That's the end of the story. If God stayed angry forever, then what would happen is his people would become hardened toward him because how could we not? If somebody said to you, listen, here's what you have to do. You have to give unconditional love to this one who has nothing but contempt for you. When God thinks of you, he just feels contempt. And he has no plans to redeem you, and he has no plans to restore you, no plans to forgive you, but you have to love him anyway. That would just make our hearts so hard. Who could do that? It would make no sense at all. But if that God that we've sinned against, that we've rejected, that we've rebelled against, that we've put other gods in his place, forgives, then you have to ask the question, how? Like, how does that work? How can he so freely forgive? What the text says is he, he doesn't retain his anger forever. Why doesn't he retain his anger forever? He says he does not retain his anger forever, comma, because he delights in steadfast love. Now, if you're somebody who has read the Bible... It's really easy to take that sentence that I just read and, and just hear it like Bible speak. It's got a lot of Bible words in it. It just kind of sounds like, okay, he does not retain his anger forever, but he delights in steadfast love. Got it. It should make you feel good. It should, but also there's something pretty radical being said here because what Micah is telling us is he's telling us that there's something that God delights in. something that he delights in so much that, that there is no spiteful ax to grind when it comes to our sin, that he carries no desire to crush those who reject his love, that he takes no pleasure in his fatherly discipline. What he wants is not our obedience primarily, what he wants is us, that he wants our love, that he wants us to receive his love for us. And then he says, and this brings to God a kind of joy a deep joy that only God alone can fully experience, which is mysterious. Because if we start thinking, trying to think about God delighting in something perfectly, our minds are only going to take us so far. And I was struck by this this week, just this, this idea of Scripture telling us, here is something that God delights in. And it made me think 
of G.K. Chesterton's book, Orthodoxy. Have any of you read Orthodoxy? I bet if I asked the question, have any of you attempted to read Orthodoxy, a lot more hands would go, I'm with, I'm with you. It is a tough book to read, hard to get into the rhythm of what he's saying. First couple of pages are just awesome. And then I, uh, and then, but then you get to the end, the last three pages blow my mind. Um, but I'm not going to read the last three pages. I'm just going to read the last few sentences of Orthodoxy. Because the last few sentences of that book have stuck with me for a long time. And they have to do with what we're talking about, God delighting in something. Because when we think of God delighting in something, we think, okay, he likes it. No, no, no. What if we're talking about perfect delight? Perfect delight. Where there's no sin, there's no stain, there's no... And it's just unbridled, pure, unadulterated joy. Can we handle that? Do we have a capacity to handle experiencing God's sheer delight in something without it killing us? Here's what Chesterton writes. He's making the observation that Jesus, during his earthly ministry, displayed a range of emotions. He wept, he grieved, he was angry, he had compassion, he had friends, right? But then there's one thing that we don't see in the ministry of Jesus. There's one emotion that he doesn't show. He says this, yet Jesus restrained something. I say it with reverence. There was in that shattering personality a thread that must be called shyness. There was something that he hid from all men when he went up a mountain to pray. There was something that he covered constantly by abrupt silence or impetuous isolation. There was some one thing that was too great for God to show us when he walked upon our earth. And I have sometimes fancied that it was his mirth. that if we were to see Jesus really delighting in the holy, could we, could we handle it? To see the Lord delight as the only holy, omniscient God and as only he could, would, would it perhaps be something too radiant for us, like Moses asking to see God and God hiding him in the cleft of a rock so that he could see a shadow of a portion of the backside of his glory. And then he still comes down from the mountain so radiant that people can't even handle it and they can't look at him. I wonder what it would do to a person to see the delight of God on full display. Now think about that thing you've done or that character flaw of yours and look at it through this lens God's pardoning grace is not some reluctant prying back of his angry bitter hands but is an expression of his utter delight that is born out of who he is his character God's pardoning grace is born out of his character not your loveliness or mine
Second, God's pardoning grace is rooted in actual justice, not in forgetfulness. In verse 19, he says this, he will again have compassion on us and he will tread our iniquities underfoot. He will cast all our sins into the depths of the sea. He will bury them. God's pardoning grace is rooted in actual justice, not forgetfulness. Verse 19 that I just read is the consequence of the truth that's named in verse 18, that though God's anger toward our sin is justified because we have sinned against him, because God is a forgiving God like no other, he's not going to just ignore the sin, but he's going to address it. He's going to deal with it. How? How will he pardon the iniquity? Don't let this pass us by. Because what he's saying is, he's, he's saying, he's, oh, he's going to address it head on. He's going to tread them underfoot. He's going to cast them into the depths of the sea. He's going to bury it. Notice how the Lord speaks of sin here. He speaks of sin as an enemy. He doesn't speak of us as the enemy. He speaks of sin as an enemy, as something to tread underfoot, as something to cast into the sea. It's an image of Pharaoh's army here, right, of the Lord swallowing up Pharaoh's army in the Exodus. And God is going to emerge as the victor over our sins and he's going to put them away and they will no longer exist as an affront to him and they will also no longer exist as powers that enslave us. And we see this in Romans 6, 17. Paul talks about this. He says, thanks be to God that you who were once slaves to sin have become obedient from the heart to the teachings to which you were committed. The gospel of Jesus Christ. The Lord will deal with our sin. He will actually remove them, place them somewhere else for the sake of our atonement. Where will he place them? He will place them on the shoulders of his son. And what will Jesus do with them? He will bury them. And he will do it readily. And he will do it lovingly. And he will do it as though it is his delight. Even as he prays, if it's your will, you could take this cup from me. But not my will, but yours be done. Our atoning Savior and Redeemer, the lover of our souls, takes the sin, treads it underfoot, casts it into the depths of the sea, and buries it. Why? Why will he do all this? Why will he show mercy? Why would he forgive you? Why would he forgive you? If you're somebody who's working to prove to God that you're worth his forgiveness somehow, you got to hear this last truth because it'll just take that gun out of your hand. And it's this. God's pardoning grace toward you is based on a promise that he made to somebody else. It's based on promises he made to others. Not, it's not based on your behavior. It's not. Verse 20, we see it. He says, you know, I'll go back to verse 19 a little bit. You will cast our sins into the depths of the sea and you will show faithfulness to who? To Jacob. And steadfast love to who? To Abraham. These words are being written after Jacob, after Abraham, after the judges, after Samuel, after Saul, after King David. So much has happened. And yet, to what does Micah appeal when it comes to the certainty of the pardoning grace of God to keep his people and to never let them go? 
Not a promise that he made to them, but a promise that he made to Jacob and to Abraham. When God shows faithfulness to you, he's not just showing faithfulness to you. He's being faithful to himself because he made a promise. What was that promise? He said to Abraham, look at the stars in the sky. Count them if you can. So shall your descendants be. You will be my people. I will be your God and I will love you with an everlasting God and nothing will ever separate us from each other. And you will be blessed and you will be a blessing to the nations in an everlasting, everlasting covenant. In other words, God's pardoning grace and his faithfulness to you is based on promises that he made to people on the other side of the world millennia ago who are not like you, who don't speak your language, who don't look like you and never met Jesus. And what does the Lord show to them? Faithfulness and steadfast love as he has done since long ago. We're going to linger on this because the theological implications are profound. You may think that God's mercy is based on the magnitude of your sin. Sin little, no problem for God to forgive it. Sin big, now we've got a problem, right? As though stealing a coat from the lost and found, he'll be okay with that one. Murder somebody, not so much. Listen, I know, I'm not denying that certain sins carry greater consequences than others, right? It should be worse for you if you murder somebody than if you steal a coat from the lost and found. But... If you think that God's mercy is portioned out based on the magnitude of the sin that you commit, you are making a serious theological mistake because his mercy has nothing to do with the magnitude of your sin and it has everything to do with the existence of your sin. It's the existence of it. The fact that you commit sin is rooted in a deeper truth that you are by nature a sinner as a friend said, sin is a sickness, not just a thing we do from time to time. And so God's mercy for you is not portioned out based on the magnitude of individual sins. It's an overflow of his character to redeem and to rescue those to whom he made a covenant promise to keep for himself forever. And his mercy is a response to his covenant-keeping nature. And it's part of him keeping his covenant promises. And that covenant was cut for you long before you were born. God's promise of mercy for you was given to you before you were ever, ever able to betray a confidence. Before you were ever able to take something that wasn't yours. Before you were ever able to curse God under your breath. Let me say it this way. You are not the reason God is kind to you. You are not the reason God is kind to you. You are the recipient of his kindness, but you are not the cause. And that is good news. When God shows you faithfulness, and when he shows you steadfast love, he is showing faithfulness and steadfast love to Abraham. He's showing faithfulness and steadfast love to Jacob. 
And even then, it wasn't because of anything in Abraham and Jacob, because we have the record. They weren't that awesome, right? They were complicated people who made messes of a lot of things. And if we look at our list of things, we say, this is the worst sin I've committed. And then we say, what's the worst sin Jacob ever committed? What's the worst sin Abraham ever committed? You know, you may just kind of back out of the room slowly and say, oh, (laughs) it's not even close, right? But God keeps his word. It's part of his character. And this is a truth that can set you free because it means that it isn't up to you to perform to get God to be kind to you. You don't have to perform for God to be gracious to you. It's only yours to respond in faith and gratitude to the mercy that he has lavished on you because of his holy word and because of promises that he's already made. You can't break the power of his promises to Abraham. You're just not strong enough. You can't break the power of a promise that God makes. Try though you might. And so now is the point where some of us would say, okay, but then are we talking about cheap grace here? Is this the kind of thing where I guess I can just send it up because, because you know, he'll forgive me. He delights to do this. Like, like I'll give him more reasons to be happy. Part of knowing the God of mercy, part of knowing a God who forgives is understanding that because he forgives, because of that mercy, because of that compassion toward us, that's why we don't want to sin. John talks about it this way. In 1 John 1, he says this. He says, this is the message that we have heard and from him, we've heard from him and proclaimed to you that God is light and in him there's no darkness at all. And if we say that we have fellowship with him while we walk in darkness, we lie and we do not practice the truth. But if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another. And the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all sin. If we say that we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. But if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If we say we haven't sinned, we make him a liar and his word is not in us. My little children, I'm writing these things to you so that you may not sin. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous one. What's he saying? James Boyce says it this way. He says, this is a great biblical principle. We might think that assurance of God's forgiveness might encourage us to just go on sinning, but actually the opposite is the case. The most important truth to keep us from sinning is the knowledge that God is unsurpassed in his forgiveness and will have mercy on us even if we do. The most important truth to keep us from sinning is the knowledge that God is unsurpassed in his forgiveness and will have mercy on us even if we do. And isn't this just what we hope God will do? (laughs) That he will set us free from the things that enslave us, from sin and sorrow, that he will vanquish from our lives the besetting enemy that is the sin in us? 
I mean, consider what God is doing when he tramples our sin underfoot, when he casts it into the sea. See, he isn't just dealing with how it affects him, but he's dealing with how it affects and enslaves us. He sets us free, not only from condemnation itself, but he also sets us free from the power of the condemning voices that are in our ears all the time, from the tormenting accusations and the enslaving patterns the enemy would love to use to shackle our hearts to a pillar of shame. And he delights in this because of who he is. And one day, if our faith is in him, is in Christ, we will see the untamed delight of the Lord. And rather than undo us, it will tell us that we are home. Let's pray. Father, I thank you that as we come to the end of a book like Micah that is so full of chastisement and judgment and indictment and exile, that it ends with this passage of scripture that can only be fulfilled in this world one way, and that is for God himself to redeem us. That we can't do it, but you can. And we on this side of the upper room, this side of the cross, this side of the tomb, this side of the empty tomb, we understand how, how you cast our sin into the depths of the sea, how you buried it. And that is that you put it on the shoulders of your son who received it. And that there's a mystery in all of this that this is your delight to do this because it's so full of sorrow and it's so full of pain and suffering. And it's so needed because our lives are so broken. And yet, you delight in trampling our sin underfoot. And so, Father, would you take away from us any sense that your pardoning grace is somehow contingent on our performance, our loveliness, uh, our efforts? And would you remind us that your pardoning grace is something that is, that is part of who you are, that your pardoning grace is born out of your character, not our loveliness, is rooted in actual justice and not in just forgetfulness and is based on a promise that you made long ago and are still about the business of keeping because that's who you are. And we pray this in your name, Jesus.